Welcome everyone to this episode of CBT Talks. Today, Joel and I are going to be responding to the interview uh, from Jennifer May and Dr. Sandra Richter. It's going to be great. We're going to have a lot of fun. Stay tuned. Well, before we dive into uh, just commentating and, and really unpacking everything that uh, Dr. Sandra Richter and uh, Jennifer talked about last week, I do want to say if you did not watch the interview from last week's episode of CBT Talks, pause, stop what you're doing, go back and watch that because we're going to be explaining the concepts that they touched on and we're also going to be unpacking some of these deeper theological truths. So, if you haven't watched that interview, go back and watch that interview, or else a lot of what we're talking about isn't going to make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, I, I really want to say first off that uh, Jennifer did a great job mm -hmm. interviewing Dr. Richter, and it was really neat as we got that, uh, you know, that personal side of this famous person. You yeah. don't always get that opportunity. And sometimes when you're interviewing someone who is kind of a big deal. They're not often as vulnerable uh, yep. as Dr. Richter was. So I was, I was real happy with the way the interview went, but they touched on some really interesting concepts mm -hmm. that we encounter as we go through the Old Testament and then into the New Testament. So I know, Jake, you wanted to unpack that amazing idea of covenant that Dr. Yep. Richter introduces and fully unpacks in her book, The Epic of Eden. First, though, she uses a metaphor just mm -hmm. to set a context for what she is trying to do as she wrote that book, and really just in general, mm -hmm. her ministry as a professor. Mm -hmm. So what is that metaphor, and what is that picture? Well, the metaphor that she uses, and, and I think this is probably the best metaphor that I've ever heard to describe this. She said that when we learn things, especially from, from the Old Testament, it's kind of like we are getting a lot of random facts and figures and people and stories, and it's like we're throwing it all in, in a random closet. Because everyone knows at their house they have that one closet where, like, if you don't know where to put something, you just throw it in that closet. And you're afraid that someone will open the door to that closet and everything will just, like, spill out like it's stuffed you can't get anymore in there. Or maybe that's just my household. I don't know. No, I don't even know what you're talking about. I I mean, I respect that this is the greatest picture and illustration you've ever heard because it obviously is applicable to you, but I, I don't have that closet in our house. I have a well, room. You have a whole room. <laughs> A whole messy room. Yeah, but we, we all have that place where we store stuff, and, and it's just it's just random junk uh, that we throw in there because we don't know how to organize it. And that's what we do with the Old Testament. If we don't know how to organize it, we kind of just throw everything in, in a jumbled mess. And most people, I feel like if you really start asking specific questions about the Old Testament— they know a lot of, you know, what you can think of as Bible trivia. They know a lot of specific facts and figures, but there's no system, there's no um, organization uh, to what they know to try and make sense of it. So uh, what she does in, 
in uh, in her book, The Epic of Eden, and what she, you know, the metaphor she used to explain it is like you have a jumbled, messy closet. Uh, it, she even calls it the messy closet syndrome um, of all of your uh, random facts about the Old Testament. And what she's trying to do through the use of covenant is give us a system to start organizing um, organizing that, that closet in, in a really simple way. Well, and it, it really gives us a good explanation of what a framework is. In the CBT world, we, we talk about a framework because really the whole discipleship system that CBT uses is, is built on the 14-era framework. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Richter says that a lot of people have a lot of information about God that they pick up as they read the Bible, yep. but it's just a jumbled up mess. Yep. So what a framework does is it, it gives us pegs to hang global, universal core truths on. And then as we build that framework out, we we're able to spend the rest of our lives putting more stuff on those pegs. Mm-hmm. CBT uses the picture not of a closet, but of a puzzle. Yeah. If you open up a, a puzzle, what do you have to have? You have to have a framework. Mm-hmm. So you use the picture that's on the front of the box. And then the first thing you do when you put a puzzle together is you find the corners and the edges. Mm-hmm. Why? Because you have to have a framework so that every individual piece yeah. has a context that you can understand where that individual piece goes. As Dr. Richter uses the image of a closet, you just get this picture of this 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 messy room because we've gotten everything out of the closet and now the room is a mess. And so one by one, we're going to take the um, the big core universal yeah. truths, fifty thousand foot view truths, as we look at the Bible as a story, mm-hmm. one story, and we're going to put those things in the closet one at a time, creating an organizational system. Yep. Now, when I get all organizational and I get in that mood once a decade, I'll go into my closet and all of my dress shirts go in one spot. And they're all facing the same way. And then all my dress pants go yeah. in another spot and then so on and so on. The jeans go in a spot. The suits mm-hmm. go in a spot. The ties go in a spot. The shoes go in a spot. And, and, and so on and so on. So Dr. Richter takes this idea, this, this metaphor, and then she applies it by taking a, a or by using a framework mm-hmm. made up of the major covenants in yeah. Scripture. And and we're going to go into detail about what the word covenant means and what those covenants are in, in a minute. But just to just to really hammer down that idea of framework, um, you know, every time we teach any kind of subject uh, in any kind of educational system, we always use some kind of framework in order to teach it effectively. Uh, whether you're teaching history and you'll go through decades or you'll go through specific wars or maybe you'll focus on a specific region. You're trying to organize it because just throwing out random history facts isn't going to do anything. Or if you're trying to teach science, you'll go by different subjects. So you might be like, we're going to do a week on the water cycle. Then we're going to do a week on this is the the parts of a, a plant. Like you have to go about it in a systematic way. And the Old Testament is already organized in a framework. The Old Testament is already organized by genre. Uh, And so you have that already organization by genre. 
You can also organize it by covenant, like Dr. Richter did, uh, or you can organize it in chronological order, which is what the 14 eras are. So it's not that we're saying that one specific framework is, um, is the absolute best and you only need to know one framework. We're saying that as you go deeper in your understanding, the more frameworks that you can start to apply, the better organized you can start to get, um, the deeper your understanding of God's Word can be. Because if you get to that point to where, let's say that you you know the, the framework by genre that the Old Testament's already divided into, and you know the chronological framework, the 14 eras, and you know this covenant framework on which covenant it is, that means that at any point uh, in Scripture as you're reading through the Old Testament, you can identify, you know, what, what genre is this? Is this poetry? Is this historical narrative? Is this wisdom? Um, is this prophecy? And then you can say, all right, well, what covenant is this speaking about, and what covenant does this take place in? And that helps you put in the framework. And then you say, well, chronologically, what is actually going on in, in history right now? And how has God revealed himself up to this point? So the more layers, the more frameworks you can put on, the deeper your understanding of Scripture. And so it is a, a discipline, but it is something that is so worthwhile. And a lot of people don't ever get exposed to those frameworks until they go to seminary. But not everyone's going to go to seminary. And so guess what? You don't necessarily have to go to seminary. Be involved with CBT. Learn the 14 eras. Uh, buy the book, The Epic of Eden. Learn this covenant framework. And your understanding of Scripture is going to just multiply. Yeah, I want to see a day where the statement you just made is not true. I want to see a day when the local church does such a good job in the area of Bible literacy, mm -hmm. that someone does not have to wait until they have the opportunity to go to seminary in order to understand Scripture. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's very interesting to me that Jesus didn't teach in a seminary. He didn't, he didn't seek out the educated religious leaders mm -hmm. of the day in order to introduce the New Covenant. Yeah. He went to the fishermen. He he went to the mm -hmm. the just the the everyday guys, a tax collector. I mean, it, mm -hmm. just this idea that we have built up in our Western culture that it is really just the seminary graduates who have access yep. to scripture. It's really the beginning of a new form of Gnosticism. You know, there's this special knowledge, and the Bible is only accessible to mm -hmm. these these people. I think the reason interviews with people like Dr. Richter are so mm -hmm. important, we studied this in, in missiology, every culture really only needs a few people that reach that scholarly level where they're, they're using the original languages yeah. to, to, with, with intimacy. Mm -hmm. Every culture only needs a, a few people that reach that level. And interviews with people like Dr. Richter are so important because the rest of us can now learn from her work at the scholarly yep. level and stand on her shoulders. Mm -hmm. But I have a strong belief that the local church can do the job of the seminary in many ways mm -hmm. if we will just apply ourselves, put in the spiritual sweat to, to, to realize that, that, that the story of the Bible really does work, and yep. God has made himself known to all of his image bearers. Yep. And it's, it, each of these frameworks helps 
all of us, regardless of our IQ, regardless of our education. Mm -hmm. Do you realize that, that we go to cultures who cannot even read in their language? They don't even have a written mm -hmm. uh, version of their language. They're just oral people. Yeah. In fact, uh, as God introduces himself mm -hmm. from the beginning, we have him introducing himself into an oral culture. Yep. So, you know, the, the story of the Bible is accessible uh, to to every range in in that spectrum of education and intellectual ability, and and so what we're doing now as as, as CBT really gains mm -hmm. traction and more people know about the fourteen hour framework, yep. what we're doing right now I think is a is a culture as we're coming back to Bible literacy. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Richter even mentioned this. You know, we got a real Bible literacy problem. Yep. And and so as we're coming back to Bible literacy, we're rediscovering the power yep. of this framework. Mm -hmm. And uh, and if we talk about the, the framework of the covenants or the framework of mm -hmm. the chronologies or the framework of the, of the genres, what we have to understand is God's people, Israel, yep. already understood and knew these frameworks intimately. Mm -hmm. yes. So we're just rediscovering them, and that kind of leads us into, let's let's unpack this mm -hmm. framework of the covenant, because it's, it's, really, it's really quite fascinating. Yeah. So uh, covenant is a really Christian-sounding word that you really don't hear uh, unless you are in uh, a very specific religious context. It's not part of our everyday language. Uh, most people have never heard or don't really know the definition of the word covenant. Uh, but actually, um, all of us have used and referred to the word covenant uh, many times in our Old and New Testament. The word testament, uh, its, its root word in Greek, is also the same word for covenant. So you can actually refer to the, the Old Covenant and New Covenant, the Old Testament, the New Testament. It, it is a word that's grounded deep uh, with, with theological and religious roots. Uh, and because of that, it's kind of left our, our normal uh, English everyday language, our common language. Uh, but what a covenant is, is it is essentially, and this is a really... Um, really high 5,000-foot uh, view uh, without getting into really specific. 5,000 feet is not that high. You, you want to go 50,000 50, feet. If you were 50,000. If, if you want to get really high. I just want to be in space at that point, just okay. fully. Okay, yeah, that's yeah. great. 50,000-foot view. I don't even know uh, where you are at 50,000 feet, but, you know. 50,000-foot view. Uh, a covenant is essentially uh, an agreement, a contract between a higher power and a lower power, or what's commonly referred to as a suzerain and a vassal. Um, and so what will happen is that that lower power basically pledges loyalty uh, and obedience to that higher power. And that higher power, that suzerain, uh, pledges protection and provision to that lower power. And this is how God traditionally throughout the Bible chooses to uh, reveal himself and have a relationship with us. God is that higher power, and we are that lower power. Uh, God has, prov uh, has promised to provide us provision and protection, and we, in response, promise to uh, have loyalty and obedience. That is the, the basic framework. And so throughout history, uh, you have this idea of covenant, and God, in each version of the covenant that he establishes, reveals more and more 
of his character. Um, but just a really basic illustration, because this isn't just something that happens between God and man. A, a suzerain vassal uh, covenant can happen between any two parties. So, for instance, let's pretend that we're both kings of neighboring nations. And let's pretend that Joel's nation, his kingdom, is bigger and stronger and tougher. And mine is small and weak. I think that'd be a good assumption. <laughs> I'm going to ignore that. So, let's let's, let's just say... For this example, uh, my nation's small and weak. Now, I don't want to go to war with Joel's nation. There are other nations surrounding us, though, that I also don't want to go to war with. So what might happen is we might into, enter into a suzerain-vassal relationship where I say, hey, uh, Joel's nation here, um, we promise to, to obey, we promise to submit, we promise to be loyal, we'll even like give you some taxes and stuff. Um, but if we get invaded by one of these other nations, do you promise to provide for us and protect us from that neighboring war? That is the essential idea of that suzerain vassal relationship. It's mutually beneficial, um, and it's the higher power, the bigger nation, protecting the, the smaller power, the smaller nation. Um, and, and that's that basic covenant contract. And so what God does is he uses this covenant, this system, to reveal his character and who he is throughout human history in ever-deepening and widening covenants, uh, starting with the—well, tell you what, I'm actually going to let Joel go through uh, some of the covenants, and we're just going to provide context. And hopefully, uh, especially if you read through the Old Testament before, um, this is going to give you some insights to how God has revealed himself uh, through history. Well, and I think it's important to recognize that the reason we understand covenant is because it, it, it really speaks to the very essence of who God is, his identity and his character as he begins the story, as he begins his story by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens mm-hmm. and the earth. In other words, God is making it known very quickly. Here's who I am. I am it. The higher power. Uh, mm. Creator God has all authority, all power, all mm-hmm. wisdom, no one like him. He is unique in his ability to sovereignly control everything. Mm-hmm. You can't top the creator yeah. uh, of all things. And so this idea of covenant really, really flows out of the fact that he is the highest power that is possible Mm -hmm. that exist. And so as God makes himself known, he enters into covenant with Mm -hmm. Adam. And Adam is is his image bearer, and God basically offers provision for Adam. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that provision is all-encompassing. We see Mm -hmm. how good God is in his design. In fact, all of the the, the systems that God creates, the trillions of, I mean, I say trillions, we don't even know how many systems because Mm -hmm. we haven't found the end of the universe Mm -hmm. yet. So everything that God created, whether he spoke it into existence or, or whether he commanded mm-hmm. something that he had already created to form something else. Yep. All of these systems are interconnected, interwoven, and mm-hmm. dependent on one another. And, and as we, we read the story of creation, once God forms Adam out of the dust of the earth, mm-hmm. we see that all of this is for the good 
of the image bearer that God has mm-hmm. made. And we see that a good God whose word is true, who wants to live in relationship in covenant yeah. with his image bearers. And he gives, he gives Adam and Eve very simple instructions. Mm-hmm. They're, they're to have dominion over all that God created. They are to tend the garden and, mm-hmm. and to keep it. They, they, they are to multiply, be fruitful, and multiply and fill mm-hmm. the earth. In other words, God's intention, his design, was that his image bearers fill the earth and that really Eden, this all-encompassing full provision of paradise, mm-hmm really encompassed the entire earth. Yeah. But he gave the stewardship of that expansion to his image bearers. This yeah. is a part of his covenant. Mm-hmm. So the higher power in the in in the suzerain vassal mm-hmm. relationship sets the terms, mm-hmm. sets the the uh, the rule book. Mm-hmm. And God's terms were you must be loyal only to me. Mm-hmm. You must obey only me yeah and 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 if you do this you can eat of any fruit the tree of the garden i mean yeah. you you can have everything anything you want but god does something really interesting in this covenant with adam mm-hmm. and and eventually eve but he tells adam before eve is correct is created you can not eat of the tree in the center of the garden mm-hmm. the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when god does this he creates a faith system, mm-hmm. and that faith system is is really I, I can't think of another word, but inserted into this this covenant yeah. relationship that God expects man to walk with Him by faith, mm-hmm. and and the the essence of faith is 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 knowing what God has instructed, knowing what God has commanded and trusting the boundaries that God has placed and uh, and doing all of that based on his character yep. as the power, as yep. the mm-hmm. suzerain. Yep. And, and so by faith, God calls Adam and Eve to walk with him, and this forms the basis of that covenant. That's why. When the the serpent came into the garden, the enemy, and told a lie about God, and God's image bearers who were in covenant with him chose to listen to that lie, consider Mm -hmm. that lie, and then take power for themselves outside of the covenant, outside of Mm -hmm. uh, correct stewardship of faith. And when Adam and Eve ate the tree that God told them not to. They disobeyed God. They rejected his kingship. They rejected the covenant that he had made with them. And that's why sin is such a big deal to God. You cannot sin against holy creator God Mm -hmm. and not have to pay the consequences. You know, and and that covenant... uh, analogy and, and framework and way of thinking about it really illustrates and, and highlights so many parts of, of that theology. I, if, if, if we go back to that example of like you're, you're this big empire and I'm this small nation and we enter into this covenant relationship, if 
you really want to understand like the fall and the rebellion of Adam and Eve, well, it would be like I, this lower power, uh, listening to an enemy spy and deciding, you know, I'm going to disobey the one thing that this empire has asked me to do. And I'm going to choose to try and get power by myself to equal this. I'm breaking that covenant. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. Uh, Even understanding what it means to be an image bearer of God can be understood through that covenant relationship. Mm -hmm. If you're in a covenant, uh, the the vassals, the lower powers, are supposed to be reflections uh, of the power of the larger one. So that if, if, if I, as a small nation, am about to go to war, they're not worried about fighting me. And when they look at our nation, they're not judging me. They're seeing, because I'm bearing the image of this larger empire, like that's who they see. I'm bearing the image of my of the, the suzerain who is uh, honor-bound to provide uh, and, and protect for me. And one other thing I, I, I really love about just this, this covenant theology and this way of understanding is time and time again throughout Scripture, God sets these terms for this is, this is the covenant, and this is the agreement, this is what we're going to do. And we see it right at the beginning of Adam and Eve. Um, man breaks that covenant. And what does God do in response? Well, I'll tell you what he does. He makes another covenant, and he doubles down, and he makes that covenant stronger. And we see that pattern unfold throughout all of Scripture, all the way to you get uh, to Jesus, which is, in many ways, the ultimate uh, covenant, the ultimate provision and protection. Death has no sting. Uh, mm-hmm. And also the ultimate in obedience and relig- in, uh, obedience and uh loyalty because when we are saved we are sealed by the holy spirit we are able to walk with god we are made a new creation uh, in uh, the image of god and so that covenant theology helps us understand but so the first covenant was adam and eve um yeah and i'm glad yeah. you you talked about the fact that that what does what is a good god whose word is true how does how does he respond when his image bearers break the covenant mm-hmm. and and i love i love that you brought that out because i think that's that's the that's, that's the cornerstone question and answer yeah. uh in all of scripture mm-hmm. so it's very interesting to me in in the story of creation god creates he works for mm-hmm. 6 days then he rests on the 7th day yeah. when adam and eve sin God has to go back to work, mm-hmm. except this is not creative work. Now it is redemptive, redemptive. work. Mm-hmm. And so the rest of Scripture is about God's redemptive work. Yeah. As the suzerain in mm-hmm. this relationship, God has to initiate mm-hmm. a new covenant. And so the the cost of their sin is death. Mm-hmm. But God chooses to forgive them, mm-hmm. and instead of killing them, He provides a substitute mm-hmm. death for them in the garden. That's where the the, the animal skins yes. that clothe their yeah. shame come from. Literally, protect, cover them. Yeah, um, yeah. What, what, what a what an amazing picture. Yeah, and and the this picture of that covering mm-hmm. becomes even richer when you see that God kicks them out of Eden, the protective atmosphere, geographic location of this paradise, Mm -hmm. this garden. He's kicking them out. Uh, Eve is going to just suffer all kinds of 
trouble in childbirth. She's going to suffer all kinds of consequences in her relationship with her mm-hmm. husband. Adam's going to have to work the ground. The ground's going to produce thorns and thistles. But but he makes a a, a new covenant, and the mm-hmm. picture of that covenant is the, the shedding of the blood of the innocent on behalf of the mm-hmm. guilty. And, and this clothing of protection yeah. as they leave the garden mm-hmm. and enter into the elements yeah. of the brokenness that is outside of Eden. Now, when God begins this redemptive work, there's a goal, there's an end. Mm-hmm. And that end is that one day God wants to bring man, his image bearers, back to yeah. Eden. So the, the story of the Bible is going to come full circle. Now, when God gives them this picture of the the substitute penalty payer, mm-hmm. the shedding of the blood of the innocent on behalf of the guilty, Adam and Eve pass this picture down, and 10 generations from Adam, you have this guy, Noah. Mm-hmm. And Noah, alone on the earth, finds favor with God. Mm-hmm. Why? Because he is a he is an image bearer in covenant with Creator God. Yeah. How do we know that he is in covenant mm-hmm. with Creator God? Because when he gets off of the ark after the flood, mm-hmm. he offers the sign of the covenant, the blood yeah. sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and 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 the scripture's really explicit here because the 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 aroma of the sacrifice reaches yep. the heavens and it's it literally says that God smells the aroma he he it pleases him yes. the aroma pleases him and God chooses to make another covenant with man yep. he has just wiped out the entire earth's population mm-hmm. everything dies except what is on the ark and God sees the faith mm-hmm. of his vassal servant, yeah. image bearer, and God makes a promise, and he promises to never again destroy the earth by flood. Mm-hmm. And you see as the story of the Bible unfolds that what God is doing right there is he is deciding to strive with the sin of his image bearers mm-hmm. until the point where his redemptive work mm-hmm. can be finished and all of his image bearers can be brought yeah. back to Eden. And so God is going to withhold complete destruction mm-hmm. until that time. And this covenant that he enters into with Noah is is very similar to the covenant he entered into with Adam and Eve after their sin. But he tells Noah and his family, fill the earth, be yep. fruitful, multiply. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a few other details, instructions, and boundaries yep. that are placed there around the shedding of blood, of, mm-hmm. of, of innocence. Um, but, but overall, God enters into a new covenant with man. He does not want his image bearers to be afraid mm-hmm. that at any point, God's going to completely wipe everything yep. out. And, and, you know, just to really hammer out the the way covenant helps us understand these stories. If you look at the Noah story, like what's actually happening, well, if we go back to like the obligations of the higher and lower power in a covenant, the higher power is honor bound to provide and protect, and the lower power is honor bound to be loyal and obey. What do you see uh, with Noah? Well, God didn't create an ark and tell Noah to get on. God didn't uh, supernaturally save Noah and his family. He he gave him a job. He said, if you believe me that a flood is coming, build an ark. Noah obeyed God and was loyal to God. 
And so God's response to that is he provided and protected Noah and his family from the flood. And so it's that same exact concept of God providing and protecting his image bearers that are in covenant with him. And, you know, I, I really wish that we, um, and we might go back and just do like a whole episode on, on all the covenants uh, going through scripture, but we are going to have to move on a little bit because there's another analogy that helps us understand covenant even uh even better, I, I believe. Um, but just to touch on the rest of the covenant itself, uh, Scripture, you know, have, you have the Noahic covenant, uh, God's covenant with Noah. Uh, you also then have the Mosaic covenant, the covenant with Moses. And that's where God says, not only uh, am I going to enter in covenant with individuals or with a family, uh, but I'm entering in a covenant with this nation. Uh, he says, I will be your God, you will be my people. And there's the giving of the law. Why? Because those were the laws that the nation of Israel were supposed to obey in order to stay in covenant with God. But of course, Israel doesn't really obey those laws. And so uh, they reject that covenant. And so God establishes another covenant called the Davidic covenant with King David. And he reaffirms this is this covenant. And he says, hey, the, the seed of David will always be on the throne. That's his promise. But of course, we see throughout the story of Scripture, once again, mankind rejects that covenant and rebels against God, just like Adam and Eve did. And so now you have the new covenant uh, through Jesus Christ and the establishment of the church. Um, that's really what the church is. The church is the new covenant. It is the uh, latest uh, rendition of this covenant relationship of God uh, promising provision and protection and us uh, pledging loyalty and obedience. And it is, it, it's something that if we can wrap our minds around, uh, it helps connect the Old and New Testament together so much because I hear it all the time, especially from, especially from youth age folks, where, where they don't think that salvation was a thing in the Old Testament or they don't have any, they, they don't have any way to connect um, like giving your life to, to Jesus Christ now and what was going on in the Old Testament. And these frameworks, especially when covenant, really helps illustrate that. But Well, uh, and, and I'm, I'm glad you, you, you went through that, that overview really quick. Don't forget the, the covenant that God entered into with Abraham. Yes. That really, really is the foundation of, yeah. of, of everything moving forward. Because when God took Abraham out of a family of idol mm-hmm. worshipers and asked him to walk by faith, God made a promise mm-hmm. to make a nation. Yep. And, and as you learn the story of the Bible, what you find out is that as God enters into covenant with Abraham... God is actually making two promises. There is a covenant and a promise to establish a nation Mm -hmm. through which God is going to provide a Messiah, Mm -hmm. the the seed of the woman that he promised Eve. But also God is promising an offspring uh, of Abraham. And and so it's it's really interesting as as God gives signs and mm-hmm. pictures of this covenant, which He often does. And Abraham's covenant journey with God, God gives him three clear pictures: the stars mm-hmm. in the sky, the sand on the on the on the seashore, mm-hmm. and the dust of the earth. This is how numerous your mm-hmm. offspring are mm-hmm. going to be. Yeah. He gives him land to see, and then, mm-hmm. and, and then he gives him a sign 
of a of the covenant to establish a nation mm-hmm. from this numerous offspring mm-hmm. and this the sign of that nation is circumcision mm-hmm. the sign of the covenant uh, of that nation is circumcision but then we we also have that covenant of offspring that yeah. like as dust on the earth as stars in the sky and the sign of that covenant really the, the picture of that covenant really becomes when god tells Abraham to put his son Isaac on the altar of mm-hmm. atonement. And and from that experience, Abraham leaves naming God and calling God uh, the, the, his provider, the God yep. who will provide. Mm-hmm. And and so you see, as as we get to the the covenant God made with Moses and yep. then with David, and then ultimately Jesus fulfills this yep. covenant, both the promise of a nation that yep. would preserve the seed of the woman and the yep. promise of offspring. Mm-hmm. And in fulfilling those covenants, Jesus then institutes a new covenant. Mm-hmm. And all of this becomes incredibly rich and complex when you see the concept that Dr. Richter unpacked mm-hmm. for us in the book, The Epic of Eden, Beit Av. Now, if you've never heard of the word Beit Av, don't feel bad because it's a Hebrew word. So it would be weird if you did hear it in everyday language. Uh, but this is, uh, again, one of those concepts where uh, if you've ever been to seminary, you've probably been exposed to this concept a little bit. But she uh, goes in her book, and in the book, The Epic of Eden, she unpacks this concept more than... Uh, I've ever experienced or been educated about it. So, you know, someone who has been in the ministry uh, over a decade, who who has all the degrees and stuff, like who's, who has that MDiv, um, this was incredibly uh, eye-opening to me as well. Me as well. Me. Yeah. Me too. And, and again, it, it's not just that, um, hey, it's not that, these are some cool facts that help you understand the Bible. It's that this is this is a framework, this is a benchmark, this is a, a piece of of solid theology that helps illuminate other parts of Scripture. And really what we're trying to do here at CBT with the podcasts and the videos reading through the Bibles, our very heart is we just want to help people understand the Bible uh, more and more. And so when we find something that helps us understand the Bible more than we did before. We immediately want to share it. And so uh, why don't you unpack that concept of Bedah for us? Well, it, it just means the house of the Father. And it, it's mm-hmm. it, it's a key that helps us understand the, the fact that God reveals himself as the father of a household. Now, a household is made up of a, of a father, then his, his sons mm-hmm. uh, and daughters, and then, and then really after that, grandchildren, but slaves. Yeah. Um, and so the way this system would work is that, you know, everybody lived in kind of this household commune, and that changes over time mm-hmm. in this Hebrew culture. But the, the head of the household, the father, mm-hmm. is, is responsible for the provision and the protection of his entire yep. household. And, and, and they, they acquire slaves, not in the sense of they are oppressing people, mm-hmm. but this, this suzerain, father mm-hmm. of the yep. household, enters into covenant with vassals, slaves. Mm-hmm. And these are other poor families or individuals who cannot provide for themselves. And yep. so they come enter into covenant with this head of household 
and and he provides uh, provision and protection, and they become a part of his household. Mm-hmm. Now, every household has a suzerain, that's the head, of the, the father, mm-hmm. but then there's the firstborn son mm-hmm. in this system. That The firstborn son is going to get a double portion of inheritance. Why? Because the firstborn son will eventually be the head of household, mm-hmm. and he will then have the responsibility of providing for and uh, providing uh, protection yes. for the rest of the household. Now, the, the Beit Av helps us understand not only that God is the father of household, mm. and he reveals himself that way, but it also helps us understand Jesus as the firstborn son. Mm. Now, a lot of people struggle with this when they, they first are grappling with the gospel. How can God have a son? Yeah. Who's well, his mom? He, he, he didn't. Have yeah. a son. Yeah. God revealed Himself in this way, mm. and and Jesus is is given the role of the firstborn son, mm-hmm. and so ultimately we see the phrase later that after Jesus uh, ascended into heaven, mm-hmm. He is seated at the right hand of yep. the Father. So this is what happens in the bait of the the firstborn son gets a, a double portion of the inheritance. When it is time for him to become the head of house, uh, excuse me, when it is, is time mm-hmm. for him to assume the place of honor of, of firstborn son, then he will then take, in a proverbial sense, the seat of honor at the right mm-hmm. hand of the father. Yep. So uh, when, the, when, when God began redemptive work, this is the picture that he gave us to really understand what he's what he's doing. Mm-hmm. So you look at this and and this the idea of covenant mm-hmm. that we just unpacked and the idea of bait of really work together, yeah. right? So God invites us to submit to him and be loyal to him. Yeah. Then he sets the terms for the covenant. He's the suzerain. Obedience is the basis of his ground rules. Yeah. And he ratifies the covenant by becoming the sacrifice. We didn't talk about this when we unpacked the covenant, but in suzerain vassal covenants, even in other cultures that weren't a part of the Hebrew Mm -hmm. culture, when when your nation would come under the protection of my nation, going back to that picture, we would ratify that covenant with some sort of sacrifice. Early days in Abraham's days, they would split animals uh, and walk between them. As a sign, really yeah. as a symbol, like, hey, I need you to understand as you walk through those split animals, mm-hmm. that's what's going to happen to you if yeah. you break the covenant, yeah. right? So God, though, shows his goodness and his love for his image bearers. He, he makes the covenant. He requires loyalty and obedience. Then to ratify that covenant, God himself takes on flesh. Yeah. And Jesus is the sacrifice himself mm-hmm. ratifying the covenant. Yeah. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he actually purchases us from slavery to sin and brings us into the Father's household, the yep. bait of. And when, when we become a part of that household, God knows we can't possibly keep the covenant. Mm-hmm. We are sinners. And, and so what, what God does as he raises Jesus from the grave and then... When Jesus ascends into heaven, he takes the place of honor as the firstborn son, yep. seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Mm-hmm. 
And Jesus takes on the role of high priest at that point, where, where for, the, for the rest of God's redemptive work, Jesus mm-hmm. is offering intercessory prayer for all of the vassals yep. in the household of God. But not only that, there's even more to the goodness mm-hmm. of God. In this covenant relationship, in this bait of, Jesus reveals to us that God's intention is not that we are his vassals, mm-hmm. but that we are his adopted children. That's right. So that when this whole redemptive work comes full circle and God brings his image bearers back to Eden, mm-hmm. and, and we know that as the new city, Jerusalem, yeah. uh, heaven, yeah. <laughs> Jesus says, I'm going to call you brothers. Yep. In fact, I call you brothers now. Mm-hmm. You are adopted children yeah. of God. But not only that, I feel like an infomercial. <laughs> Wait, there's, there's more. more. In order to seal our adopted status as children mm-hmm. for eternity, God baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And the Holy Spirit uh, differentiates us from yep. every other person in the world. Mm-hmm. That there is a household of faith, there is uh, there is a, a church in covenant with God, mm-hmm. and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, identified as adopted children of the King, yeah. head of the household. And you know to go into it e- even deeper because there's a few words and concepts, and I want to make sure that no one uh, misunderstands and gets like lost in the weeds because, like you mentioned, like being uh, you had the the household, the family, like the head family, you have the firstborn son, you have the other children, relatives, and you also have the slaves underneath them. Well, slaves in today's language is a very loaded term, which is why a lot of people choose to translate that as as servants, as a way of explaining. But but we're going to get real because the Bible's real and the word is slave. And so let's unpack what that means. Let's pretend that, once again, Joel is the, the head of a household. Um, and we're in the ancient world, so there is no bank accounts, and there's no grocery stores, and there's no savings, and there's no social safety net. There's none of that. So I have a little farm, um, you know, miles away, and uh, man, it's been rough times. There was a, there was a mudslide or something, and like our crop is ruined. And I'm looking at my family, and I'm like, listen, listen, we're gonna starve to death. Of all the catastrophes, you chose a mudslide. Oh, it could be a mudslide, mudslide drought, whatever. The, the point is, something happens. What about uh, locusts? A, swarm of locusts. What about a comet uh, hitting your field? Sure, destroying Com- it. Comet hits, obliterating field. it. Miraculously, I'm okay. Though. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so, right, yes. right. so, but farms destroyed. <laughs> No, no more crops. No more li- or let's say that I, I raise livestock and I, I, I sell the wool and I sell the milk, but a disease comes through and, and they all die. Me and my family, we are facing starvation. Like we don't know what we're going to do. So, so we come uh, to your land, to your family, and this is what we say. We basically say, like, listen, we need provision and protection. We don't have anything like left. And you graciously say, well, you can come and you can live with us. You can be a part of our household. But because it's your land and your family and your property and your crops and your food, like you make the rules. That is a slave relationship. A big thing. As long as you're staying here, you have to obey this person. We see throughout history that very simplistic version of slavery become uh, exceedingly corrupt and oppressive, and God pronouncing judgment 
on that form of slavery that we see, uh, you know, of course, in the story of Exodus. Like, we see God explicitly condemning slavery, freeing the Israelites from being slaves, and then commanding the Israelites never to take slaves like they were slaves in uh, in Egypt. So you have that system of God saying, hey, remember you were once slave. Do not mistreat a slave in that relationship. But, but that basic idea of, um, you know, servants or, or slaves in that household. Yeah, but... Well, I, I just want to park there for, for just a second, mm-hmm. because if you were to come into a household mm-hmm. as a slave, God set in the law a certain, um, a certain yeah. term for that agreement, and, and it, it, it could only last that long. And then, yeah. and then there was a point where no matter where you were in that time, you were to be set free. Yep. And so God provided for there, for there to never be a distortion yep. of that slavery system. Yep. But there should never be, there's, in, in God's system, there would never be a scenario where like, my family has no food, we come in, and Joel is able to use that to like systematically oppress me and my descendants right. for, for years. There was never a possibility for that, but that concept was corrupted later on. But I think that it's such an amazing thing that as we see God expanding what he actually wants, you know, most religions, if you really get down to it, still describe the relationship between humans and whatever God that they're trying to proclaim as one of a slave and master. Basically, God is, uh, in their version of God, is is all-powerful and do whatever he wants, and you have to obey him or he's going to punish you. You are slaves and he is the master. You look at the Christian faith, and, and what we see with this whole picture of Jesus being the firstborn son, and what we see with these these examples of, um, I'm, I'm blanking on the reference, but uh, Bible says uh, we've not received a spirit of fear into slavery, but a spirit of adoption uh, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, is how we refer to God, because we're being adopted into the literal family of God. So the idea is in this Christian concept, it's not that God is our master and, and we are now slaves, and we're just trying not to get punished. It's the idea that we can be adopted into this household because of what the heir, the firstborn son, has done for us. And now we get to be co-heirs with him. We are not slaves, nor are we even servants. We are adopted into that family of God, uh, in that inner circle of that household, uh, enjoying the provision and protection. And that is the full awesome, amazing uh, concept of adoption and redemption. And so many people think that to follow Jesus means to have an angry master with a big list of rules, and you better obey all the rules or, you know, God's going to punish you. Mm -hmm. And that's not what we see in Scripture. Well, and it's really neat because in the law, God provided a a description of exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Because... If you get to that point where you're supposed to be freed from your your slavery yep. in that household, if your master was so good mm-hmm. and so great and your life with the master in the household as a slave is infinitely better mm-hmm. than your life would be if you left his household, 
you could actually become a bond slave. And you could say, if, if we were back in the scenario yeah. where yeah. you were in my household, you could say, Joel, you're such a good master that I want to spend the rest of my life in your household. Mm-hmm. And we would take a nail, we'd put you on the door, uh, in the doorpost, and we would nail the nail through your ear mm-hmm. in the doorpost. It would be a sign that you have now covenanted with me to be my slave for life. But the reason you would do that is because I was such a great master. Mm-hmm. Paul actually calls himself a bond oh, slave of mm-hmm. Christ because our master is so good. Our master is so great. The provision and protection in in that covenant relationship that he offers us is infinitely better mm-hmm than a life that we would have outside of that covenant. That what the gospel calls us to is to commit and to submit Mm -hmm. to bond slavery in the household of the Father um, to to Christ. That's what we mean when we say, make Jesus your Lord and Mm -hmm. Savior. You're submitting to God the Father as a bond slave and as the terms of the covenant are laid out, once we make that submission, he adopts us Into the as children. He mm-hmm. says, no, I don't want you as a bond slave even. Yeah. You're my child. <laughs> you know, and, and I think one of uh, one verse or one passage that I think really illustrates the importance of understanding this household is actually a piece of scripture that I've known for, for quite a while. It's a famous passage. It's uh, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. This is just talking about the preeminence of Christ. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So if we look at at just those few verses and we really want to understand what they mean, um, and again, let's say that you don't have several years and and some money to get a seminary-level education and really learn how to parse each individual verse. How can you make sense of this? Well, the firstborn of all creation... That's not saying that Jesus was the first thing created because he wasn't created. It's saying he is the firstborn son in God's household where God created everything. Uh, When it says that uh, uh, for him all things were created because they're all under his dominion. Uh, When it says that he is the head of the body of the church, what do we mean by that? We mean the church is the family of God. You know who's the head of the family? The firstborn son. The one... yeah. The one who made the sacrifice, purchasing their, yes. uh, purchasing the church from slavery to sin. Yeah, and, and so he's the head. Yeah, that's that's where we get that concept. That's the idea. Um, and you know, even verse twenty, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. What do we mean when we say reconcile? We mean the firstborn son wants to bring. Um, all these people wandering in the wilderness, all these people living outside of the, God's household, outside, outside of, of provision, Eden. Yeah, outside of Eden, outside this walled garden. We want to take all these people, we want to bring them in, 
and then we want to adopt them into the family, enter into that covenant. And and so, again, all these concepts just help build the picture and deepen our understanding of the Old Testament so that so that when we are when we're reading the story of Abraham and God not only makes a covenant with him but reaffirms the covenant it begins to make sense and we begin to understand God's full redemptive plan throughout history uh, because it is one story one plan one redemption of Ever since the fall, uh, like you said earlier, God stopped his creative work and started his redemptive work, and we're still in the middle of it right now. What an amazing story. And, you know, you just mentioned through Scripture in Colossians that, you know, God is reconciling all things to himself, mm-hmm. and, and, and that would include the creation. Which brings up something that Sandra Richter mentioned. Yes. Her work on environmental theology. Mm-hmm. So I'm really curious. Environmental theology is, is really new to me. I'm very mm-hmm. ignorant on a scale of 0 to 10 when it comes to knowledge about environmental theology. I am at a 0 scholastically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Done a little bit of, of thinking just as a student of the Bible, but mm-hmm. I have never read a book or been involved in any teaching on environmental theology. Yep. So go ahead. So I haven't taken Go that ahead way. with okay. that if you have any thoughts. Yeah, yeah. All right. So environmental theology. This is one of those things where this is an area of Scripture that is not taught, uh, especially in the South. And the reason why, if we're just going to be completely honest, it's because we have politics wrapped up in our religious system so much that— a lot of people um, are afraid, or I shouldn't say afraid, they're wary of, of teaching environmental theology because they are afraid that people will think that they're advocating for political positions that they might not be. And so this is something where it was hinted at in, in seminary a little bit for me. I, I only remember one actual lecture that just touched on it, and it was in systematic theology too. And it was literally just one lecture one day, and that's all we got. But it's this idea that uh, going back to the creation story, God commanded us to tend the garden. And that garden, like you said, like should have spread and filled the earth. We are supposed to be the, the tenders to this garden. And if we have dominion over this earth, and if we have been commanded by God to tend the garden, here's what that means. We have the ability to completely mess up this garden, to destroy everything. And we are really good at destroying the environment. We are. Uh, At the same time, we're never supposed to start worshiping or overvaluing the environment either because environment, including all the animals, like we have sovereignty over them. And so there's this fine line of what does it mean to be a good steward of creation? And how do you protect yourself from going too far and beginning to really worship the environment, or worship creation over the creator? And in today's political climate, because most Christians are politically conservative, and since one of the biggest issues nowadays is, is global warming, a lot of people don't want to talk about environmental theology because they're afraid that um, 
you know, they'll be put into a, a box of thinking, oh, you're part of that political party. Now we don't want to listen to anything you want to say. But just those initial truths right away of saying, well, listen, according to Scripture, Jesus does want to reconcile everything to himself, including creation. According to Scripture, we have been made stewards and given dominion over the entirety of creation. And it's our job to steward it well, just like we're supposed to steward uh, our money well. We're supposed to steward ministry well. We're supposed to steward our family well. We're also supposed to uh, steward the environment well. Uh, Again, I need to put that disclaimer on, though. We're not going so far as to say that we're overvaluing or worshiping because we do have dominion. But um, at the same time, we should not ignore the fact that God gave us a command to tend the garden. And we cannot forsake that command or else we are disobeying the Word of God. Yeah, and I, I've disclosed that I have no experience in the uh, the sphere of environmental theology. I do have I do have thoughts just as I yeah. read Scripture about mm-hmm. creation. Uh, by the way, I just bought the book that Dr. Sandra Richter uh, wrote, Stewards of Eden. Would suggest everyone going to do that. While you were talking, I just went and bought it on Amazon because I just realized yeah. I haven't I haven't read that book yet. Mm-hmm. But I'll look forward to to looking into that sphere of environmental theology. But I think as we as we look at 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 any framework, and mm-hmm. of course, when you use the word theology, you're yep. you're talking about another framework. Yep. Uh, what does what we can observe about creation, what does it teach us about God? Mm-hmm. And you, you talk about stewarding the environment mm-hmm. well, tending the garden well. Uh, life outside the garden is is filled with brokenness, and yep. God actually promised once once we left the garden, we would have to work the earth, and it would produce thorns and thistles mm-hmm. for us. That, that there would be this continual groaning from all of creation, the, the, the consequences of the garden not filling the earth or encompassing mm-hmm. the earth. And, and so even, even farmers, though, recognize that as they work the ground, they've got to take care of that ground, yeah. and and as we learn and we grow and we we understand more uh, about chemistry and and about the the environment and 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 ecological aspects, you know, every farmer will rotate crops. Why mm-hmm. are they doing that? Well, they're they're doing that to give the land the land a rest. Mm-hmm. Why? Because if they don't, the land will stop producing. Yeah. I think our relationship with creation is one to learn about God that that mm-hmm. He is Creator, that He is uh, systematic, that 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 His His greatness and His His creative His creativity and His power to accomplish the most complex systems that we still have yet to fully understand. Um, that that. All that we can observe in creation is meant to lead us to that one point. Mm-hmm. There must be a God. In fact, Paul says in Romans 1 that this sphere of environmental theology, what does the environment teach us about God, is enough for someone who doesn't have access to Scripture to begin seeking Creator yeah. God. And, and that every person who does not bow the knee to Jesus is without an 
excuse, even if they've never been exposed to Scripture, because every person can see the creation. Mm -hmm. And so I think our relationship with the environment, our relationship with creation, in part, is that God expects us to acknowledge Him as we interact with creation. It is a great teacher about the uh, divine attributes of the character of God. But secondly, I, I agree with you. Our relationship with creation ought to be one of gratitude and thanksgiving, mm-hmm. understanding that everything God made in that creation story was for our benefit. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we squandered our inheritance in Eden. Yep. God gave us everything, and we squandered it. Now, outside of, of the garden, we live in brokenness, and we struggle with this environment. Uh, we struggle with how... It groans under the weight of the choices of sinners, mm-hmm. and uh, and in that in that struggle, though, we should continually live with a sense of awe and wonder, mm-hmm. and gratitude, and good stewardship. I'm gonna say one last thing. I think the the one of the marks of of our relationship with with the environment is just found. In, in the Lord's Prayer, mm-hmm. and and just in that the, the very essence of what happened in the first church in Acts chapter two as they as they formed, a Christian, a believer, who is in the household of God now, never loses a sense of awe and wonder at the fact that we can sit down and have a meal mm-hmm. that is amazing that represents the provision of God. Yeah through our relationship with this mm-hmm. environment that we yeah. are stewarding. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a powerful, powerful daily uh, discipline to live in that awe and wonder and, and in relationship with what God has created. Anyway, those yeah. are my thoughts. Well, uh, just, to, just to close out uh, that little bit of environmental theology, um, just for some closing thoughts that, that, that I've had too, um, you know, a lot of times uh, with environmental theology, uh, I feel like, especially those who grew up not around the environment a lot, like in the cities or, or in the suburbs, um, almost have an idyllic picture of what the wild, what nature is. But, you know, if you've ever been on uh, the mission field uh, in some of the places, like you can be out in the middle of the wilderness where there's no roads and there's no electricity and there's no running water and there's no people living there. And it's not exactly a kind place. It's not exactly idyllic. You have predators eating prey. You have droughts. You have disease. You have, uh, you have locusts. You have all these things. And so one thing that I do want to say is environmental theology is not a teaching that nature is perfect and humanity just needs to get out of the way. It's the idea that nature, creation itself, is also fallen. And it is our job to tend to that garden, to, to get rid of the weeds and the thorns as best we can. Uh, and allow the land to produce something fruitful. That's the the picture that we have. And because the world's fallen, because uh, nature in itself is inherently uh, sinful, just like we are now because of the fall, um, we're never going to get to that point where everything is perfect. We're not going to make heaven on earth uh, because there will be a new heaven, new earth uh, when Jesus comes back. That's when uh, we'll reach that when he redeems and reconciles everything to him 
But until that time, we do need to recognize, and I think this is where environmental theology really helps us, it reminds us that because of our actions, uh, creation itself is, is fallen. And it humbles us and reminds us that we don't have complete control over our fate, even though we like to pretend that we have mastered everything. Uh, and, you know, a hurricane or a tornado or a pandemic all really helps illustrate that even with all of our technology and all of our money and all of our effort, it is impossible for us to fully get rid of all the thorns and all the weeds in creation. We will continually be tending to it and fighting with it and struggling against it. And God will bless our efforts and provide us abundant provision. But at the same time, he said that we will have to work by the sweat of our brow. And that is one reason why it says that creation is groaning with labor pains in anticipation for redemption. We also are looking forward to the day where new creation, new heaven, new earth, we're able to do work without thorns and without weeds and just enjoy the abundance of provision. Um, and that is, that is a picture of of heaven and redemption that that I like to cling to and I like to look forward to. So hopefully that that clears up some misconceptions. We we do need to to clear up one thing because you just said that that nature is sinful just like we are. What you're yep. not saying is that there is redemptive work and and yeah. redemptive agency that nature has in the yes. same way that God's image bearers do. But what we do have as God unpacks the picture of the new Eden, yep. uh, the new heaven and new earth, the new city Jerusalem, is, is just this simple uh, statement, the lion will lie down with the lamb. Yeah. Uh, the, there is a there's a, a a reconciling that God is going to do with the whole creation, yes. so that the results of sin no longer destroy everything yes. that God has created. Mm-hmm. And and again, just the reason why nature and creation has fallen is remember God gave us sovereignty over that, mm-hmm. and then we chose to sin and so the fall affected not only us but it affected the world itself and that's something that i think is lost in in a lot but environmental theology it's amazing dr sandra richter has not only um the book stewards of eden but also uh, a lot of lectures talks things like you can just youtube and and listen to some of the stuff and i think environmental theology is an area of theology that is often neglected in our church teachings um, and hopefully uh, throughout the next few years, maybe it'll start making a uh, comeback because it is deeply rooted in Scripture and is right there at the beginning where God looks at Adam and, Eve, well, at Adam and says, tend the garden. Amen. Well, um, you got anything else to close us out? I think we well, had a pretty good episode. And in, in closing, I just want to say thank you to Dr. Richter for taking the time yes. to, to help us. And I look forward to reading the book, Stewards of Eden, and digging into steward uh, to environmental theology. If you are watching this on YouTube or Facebook, please hit the like button, share it, uh, do whatever it is, make yeah. a comment. It, it really does help out the podcast as we try to just grow and... and Reach and, more people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But in, in all of 
this, we simply want to stimulate your mind. We want you to daily read God's Word. We use the Tyndale One-Year Chronological Bible in the 14-era framework. There's many free helps on chronologicalbibleteaching.com. Mm-hmm. I'm Jake. I'm Joel. This has been CBT Talks. See you next week.